Welcome back, everyone, to episode four of the Prod Squad podcast. Back again, Nick Cook here with Brendan Colleton. This week, we're going to talk about a often asked question, which is how technical should a PM be or how technical does a PM need to be? Um, but before we do that, I, I need a name for this segment, the segment before the main show. So, <laughs> Brendan, I'm open to suggestions. Um, in our notes, it's what's top of mind. Um, but... The, few, the segment to be named in the future, what's on your mind, Brendan? Yeah, that is a good point. We need a, a better name for this than like what we talk about before we talk about <laughs> what everyone downloaded this episode to listen to. <laughs> Brendan and Nick uh, catching up. <laughs> the annoying part that people skip through on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought the, the one interesting thing I saw this week was... Um, uh, an article on LinkedIn, they called it the great reshuffle. And uh, it was basically about, I think what, what everybody's probably aware of post pandemic is that there's been this great uh, migration of people, uh, you know, the great resignation, they call it, uh, people leaving their jobs. But uh, somebody actually tried to break down like which roles inside companies were most likely to, to be looking for other jobs at the moment. And um, with the caveat that all of the data is like, pretty close together, like there wasn't a, a dramatic difference between it. Uh, product management was actually like third on the list uh, in terms of uh, positions where people are looking to switch jobs the most. And that was after, you know, product support, which in my mind is like always a pretty high, o mm -hmm. high turnover position. Um, and then like marketing and operations, which are, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to speculate on, but I did think that was interesting. I didn't always think about product management as a, a job that lends itself well to like super high turnover but i don't know if you have a take on you know why that might be that product management lands on that list i will say we both are part of the statistic true, true. <laughs> as we just started new jobs this year um yeah i don't know i i i'm 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 just looking at the list here uh i'm, I'm i guess i'm surprised that I, I was wondering if there was a correlation between i'm assuming like job satisfaction is a factor but then also like the market for your, like, do you think you can find another appealing job, you know? So I, I was, I was looking to see if something like engineering was on here, which I feel like uh, it's, and it's not, you know, but like, oh, yeah. it, and I was wondering if it's like a, the market's so hot type situation. Um, I don't know. I guess if I had to speculate, I think one thing that I, I think product management is, uh, can be defined very differently at a lot of different companies. So I wonder if this was an opportunity for people to maybe try to find, uh, you know, a job that more aligned with what they were hoping product management was going to be. I think sometimes it can be can be kind of a, a catch-all. Um, maybe it's more project management or program management at a company. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the the one thing I thought was interesting, I mean, I, I took a, a sort of an intro level PM certification class last year that had a lot of people that were sort of almost like you said, in pseudo product management roles, but trying to get into permanent product management roles. And, mm -hmm. and maybe that's what's driving it. You know, people that want to do this full time that aren't doing it full time today. Um, but uh, I, I really wasn't sure. I am going to keep an eye out just for any better information about, you know, what is necessarily driving that. 
one actually i just i just thought of is uh, maybe i i I feel like sometimes product can be is (laughs) i was gonna say product's very close to the product which is a real stupid thing to say but you know maybe they have some I don't want to say insight, but like they have a really good, maybe they have a a, a pretty good read on how they think uh, their their company or their product might perform, and that makes them more likely to, I, I don't know, want to look for another job if they don't think things are gonna go a certain direction, um, as opposed to maybe a role that's further away from that. Um, yeah. Uh, that's pretty interesting, though, and we we boosted that stat. So, <laughs> I, I say I'm surprised by it, but I also contributed. So, I yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, my my quick thing this week was, um, and <laughs> we're not sponsored by YouTube TV yet, um, but my my mom has been um, talking about you know cutting the cord and and um, was asking me like, okay, other than like the fact that you know cable costs this and YouTube TV costs this. Why do why do you like it? Because I've always said that I, I thought it was a really good product. And it really struck me how I feel like YouTube TV is a great example of like understanding what your users like want, like how they want to uh, use the product, right? Like I, I think at the most basic level, you know, TV cable is set up to go channel. Like it's a channel centric model right and then as i was thinking about trying to explain it to my mom i was like youtube tv is show centric right like i land on a home page and it knows what i like i like sports it doesn't care that this it's on abc or nbc right it's just like here's a basketball game do you want to watch the basketball game and it's like absolutely and, and that i hadn't really thought about like why it was so much better but it kind of just just jumped out to me when my mom was asking me for an explanation yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and for those that maybe aren't familiar with YouTube TV, mm. uh, there are no channel numbers in there, right? Like you can't go to channel five on YouTube TV, right. or channel 24. Like you don't have to remember that ESPN is, you know, a specific number. Um, there is maybe a guide or a listing where it's mm. kind of grouped by types of channels. Uh, that would be similar, I guess, to like a, a guide. But that is not what you browse when you're in YouTube TV. Like primarily what you do is you have your sort of home screen or your your library that is basically where you've told YouTube TV what you're interested in. And then it'll one, record everything, but also take you to any like live TV shows that are ongoing that, that meet that criteria. So uh, you're just doing very little browsing, which mm-hmm. I agree is amazing. The only other thing I'll add about anybody especially for you know the older generation looking to potentially go and, and cut the cord with cable. Like if you have like a fire TV stick or a Roku stick, there are like five buttons on that thing where like a traditional TV remote has like 30 or 40 yes. buttons on there. Like it's a, and I hate those things. Like it's, <laughs> I feel like I cut the cord, the cord exclusively so that I could use a, but, a remote that has five buttons on it. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just such a such so much additional simplicity they introduced for like zero loss in functionality that I can even recall or like what exactly you've lost. Yeah, I need I need arrows and a select button and and I'm good to go. Yeah. Uh, I'll save the rest of my shilling for YouTube TV when when we're paid to do it. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a little taste, you know, real of it. All right, on to the the main topic of today, which is how technical um, does a PM need to be? Uh, and I think this is 
you know, PM needs to be a lot of different things, but I think the technical hurdle is the one that is the most, most often comes up. And I, I, I think that's possibly because it can also be most easily, uh, like tested in a way. It's kind of a concrete hard skill where some of the other skills of a PM are, are a little more difficult to, to test. Um, and I, 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 Gibson Biddle is the former VP of Netflix and, um, chief product officer at Chegg, and I liked, he kind of broke down there's seven traits of a PM. One of them is technical, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. But then there's also, you know, management, creative skills, business acumen, marketing, design, consumer science. So we're going to focus on one facet today, but that's because it's often the one that I think gets questioned the most. Has that been kind of your experience too, Brendan? I think it's the one that people are the least sure about like how they would even tackle gaining technical skill right mm -hmm. like i don't think either of us for example would say that we have like a really keen design skill like we're not designers <laughs> and, and that's one of the seven here but i think we both know like if we really wanted to get great at design like we both know what what we would do to chase that and like the type of classes we would take and like what to google and look up but uh, for a lot of people getting into product management or, or thinking about improving their product management skills, when they're thinking about becoming more technical, they they don't really know what that means, right? Does that mean I need to like understand database design? Does it mean mm -hmm. that I need to, to know how the internet works? Um, like, do I need to know how to code? What What is it that I need to be learning in order to be technical? And I think that's what we should try and, and shed some light on for people because I think we've both been asked at different times to to have or gain some technical type knowledge that uh, is helpful to product managers and it, it isn't learning how to code, um, which mm -hmm. I think can make you much better at, at the discipline. Um, but yeah, the, the rest of them are all things that even if you're not great at, you sort of understand the concept of and, and where to go for. Understanding how to be technical is a little bit different and more challenging. Yeah, it's more of a black box. It's more, it's more mystical. It's at least it seems from from the outsider perspective, you know. Uh, the other, the other ones maybe you have some some grounding for them, or it's something you've experienced in a product related role. But unless you're coming from that probably computer science background, the the technical one is probably the most elusive. Um, so I do think at, at sort of the top level, there's there is a difference uh, at the sort of job description level if you're looking at like a technical PM versus a traditional PM. Uh, maybe important to, to point out, we are both, I guess, traditional PMs, non-technical PMs. Yeah, and I think especially for this episode, right? Maybe in the future we'll do some episodes focused on the technical PM, but I, I think what we're gonna be talking about today, and this is a good distinction to make, is how technical do you need to be as somebody that isn't you know, uh, designing the cloud hosting aspect of whatever service, right? Um, mm -hmm. Somebody that isn't working on like a DevOps type product or a an infrastructure type product. Like uh, this is about, you know, you are uh, designing a, a front end consumer facing or B2B application for users. And, uh, you know, you're trying to become more technical or understand what about being technical might help you? Um, obviously, on the, the technical BM side of things, um, that's a whole different ball game and a whole different set of skills that, uh, again, maybe we'll touch on at some point, but not this episode. Yeah. 
I liked um so it's actually funny that that uh, I know you had a, a reason for kind of suggesting this topic when we were brainstorming what to talk about this week and uh, my boss at Hi Marley also shared an article pretty recently like within the last month that was like he's like oh, I know people always ask how technical should a PM be um and uh kind of shared an article that that gave some really high level um perspective on different technical aspects but one thing I liked was at the the top of the article it kind of just said hey like imagine there's like five levels of of technical acumen it's like (laughs) level one is like i have no idea what's going on you know and then it's like i broadly understand what's going on i broadly understand um what's going on and and how it applies to the product Uh, you know i deeply understand it and how it applies to the product and then like level five is like i could code this myself and it suggested that the sweet spot was that level three i can broadly understand what's being said when I'm when I'm having, uh, you know, a technical conversation, and most importantly, why it, the implications on the product I'm working on. So I, f- I feel like that's like a good north star to kind of set for for yourself. Yeah, that's a good that's a good five point scale there, uh, and and basically they're recommending the the medium level. Yeah, <laughs> if we're, if we're equating it to a burger or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean the uh, I do think for. Like I remember the first time I was in meetings with like a developer, found myself in meetings where they were talking about the 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 you know the back end of the product or some of the decisions that they were making or debating about how they were going to build some type of feature. And so it's t- totally normal to begin in that kind of level one. I have no idea what anyone's talking about, and I still think I find myself there at times. Like mm-hmm. uh, this past week, even um, I was uh, in a in a meeting with one of the, the really high level product managers. At, uh, at Viva, and uh, as we'll talk about in a second, um, Viva puts a, a big emphasis on how technical uh, their PMs can be. And I think part of the reason for this is that this sort of um, head of product there is an extremely technical person. And uh, I was very clearly in the, I have no idea what is being talked about uh, phase in this meeting as they were you know, uh, basically trying to sort of pinpoint um, where they were gonna capture you know, key metrics for how our, our backend and, and how the application architecture was performing and where the bottlenecks would be. And I was quickly out of my depth there. Um, but I mean, I, I also say that now, you know, I think once you've gained a little bit of technical skills, it's much easier to quickly kind of level yourself up into level three as you start to understand just sort of the basics about how SaaS applications work and um, you know what the different components I would say of a of a SaaS application are. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I feel like there's uh, once you have a, some experience, it, you can get up to speed on different aspects a lot quicker. Even though, I mean, someone was talking about Kubernetes at time wireless past week i'll be honest i don't know a lot about kubernetes so um but it's something I, I definitely part of our conversation too <laughs> <laughs> yeah AWS, but... it runs the world <laughs> <laughs> but it was something i'm like okay i could read a google article and i know enough of these words to to make some sense of it um you know more quickly um so yeah i, I know brendan you kind of brought this topic up because of uh the, the experience you've been having at work. So, um, and I think related to, to how kind of user stories work at, uh, at Viva. So uh, t- tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I guess just to set the background, uh, I think both of us would agree with sort of this agile principle about what a good user story should be, right? This is even my answer when 
I was asked in interviews, what makes a good user story? One of the most common questions. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would say, and I can now revisit the hamburger analogy from earlier, is that a good user story, um, you know, it's a it's a full bite of the hamburger. It's not just the mm -hmm. bun, it's not just the burger, it's not just the cheese. You're getting front end, back end, middle layer. You're getting, you know, the whole vertical slice. Um, and uh, the reason for that, right, is that to accomplish a user's goal, right, you know, as a user, I want to log into the application or I want to, uh, you know, take this action or receive this benefit. Uh, it's never like as a user, I want to launch this modal or make a backend API call because those things in isolation don't add any value to the customer. You know, you're always talked about that a good user story uh, talks from the perspective of what adds value to your customer. And uh, it's on the developers, it's on the team to then decide what are the, the front end and the back end and the API components that are going to go into that to make the story. And so one of the biggest differences in kind of how our team is operating at the moment is that uh, our team right now separates front end and back end user stories. Um, and I guess if I were to try and defend that sort of role and, and why they're doing it, um, there are a few things that it, it does prevent, potentially provide an advantage in. One is obviously it, it allows our front ends and back end teams to be working on two different areas of the application. Um, and in general, uh, our back end team is kind of a sprint ahead of the front end team. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that, you know, our backend team focuses on whatever's upcoming next and kind of gets everything ready. You know, you can think about it as they are um, getting the calls and the data and the, um, you know, anything that the front end is going to ultimately need to develop that side of the application. They're preparing it and making you know it all available to the front end to receive. And then our front end team, by the time that they get to it, they have now front end tickets that are really simple for them, right? Because the APIs are there, you know, they're not using any placeholders. Uh, and I do hear from our, our front end developers, right? The people working on the front end of our application that they like that. They like that they don't have to wait for an API call to be available in order to work on their side of the application. They basically get to, you know, uh, build what they build with the whole set of tooling that they need. Um, and so I think theoretically that could potentially make you faster if you do a really good job of that, having your front end team a little bit out ahead of the back end team, because it can make the, the front end team more efficient. Um, you know, there's less communication required between the two teams, but that's also, I think, a big drawback at times, uh, because if you mess it up, you're now, you know, in a little bit of a bind. And, you know, I think that's what I've occasionally seen happen. Yeah, it's like uh, you kind of, what if you ran the the water pipes in your house and then you were like, no, that's not where we're going to put the bathroom or something, yeah. right? Before you put the bathroom in, you know? Um, and I, that does seem to put a lot more of a burden on, I guess, yourself as the product manager to understand, like, I feel like normally the level of granularity, like you were saying that, that a product manager would operate at is um, the slice of the burger. And we're just going to get some serious mileage out of this analogy. Um, <laughs> the, the slice of the burger, which is like the user story. And that doesn't, you don't have to break it up. You just have to know which slice you're taking, but you actually have to <laughs> go like, but which is a bun, where, where's the patty? I'm losing it a little bit, but you, you know what I'm trying to say. And yeah, how sure. it, Go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to ask, how have you like found trying to 
split that up like from a technical understanding yeah i mean so uh I will say that, you know, because we, we're, we're almost a startup within this much larger organization, right? So it's not like there's um, a whole defined way to necessarily do this. This was sort of what the PMs that were there before me were doing and, and how the team is used to operating. And, and so, you know, being relatively new there, I'm not, I'm not going to come in and shake everything up. Um, I do think there's a few things that um, I've, I've tried to do uh, since being there to, to help uh, make this sort of back end front end breakup uh, as smooth as possible. You know, one is I do think um, even when you have a back end and a front end, you know, you have them separate, it's still better to break out tickets according to sort of the functional goals they're trying to achieve, right? So um, one of the things that I still think is not a best practice is, you know, if we, when we move to a new area, for example, you know, we just recently tackled this survey style function. Um, you don't want one back end ticket to say, you know, create the APIs that will do everything we need for the survey functionality. Um, that I think probably, you know, has all the same problems as a too large user story, mm -hmm. where it's like, as a user, I want to uh, take surveys in the applications. Like, okay, well, that's that's huge. Right? There's a lot. There's a lot involved there. Yeah. Uh, and so, writing a backend ticket that that version has all of the same challenges. So you still want to break it into, you know, as a user, I want to create a custom question on a, a survey. And I'm still finding myself writing what I would think of as a traditional user story to start. Mm -hmm. um, but what I then have had to do as sort of my next step after I have my, my traditional kind of incremental small user stories is I'm actually diving into the APIs to say like, do we have the APIs to support this? Will we need a new type of backend call? Will we need to make new pieces of the data available um, so that I can get those tickets created for our backend team uh, before we tackle those front-end tickets? Um, so that's that's the way I've tried to tackle it, um, which again, I, I think is maybe one additional step um, on the PM side to potentially make the developer's life a little bit easier. And if everything goes smoothly, you know, I think it's as good as any, any uh, process. Where things fall apart is when the front end team looks at the ticket and for some reason, you know, I've missed it or the back end team has missed it. And now the back end team's not working on that area, this sprint, right? They've moved on. So we either need to create another ticket for the back end team to circle up and, and you know, solve the APIs or make new data available. Uh, or uh, we need to have the backend team sort of abandon the work that they started in the sprint so that they can reorient themselves around this unplanned work. And I think both of those things are, you know, not what agile is after when you're uh, kind of following a, a traditional, you know, agile sprint methodology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like creeping. So, so I, I you know, one thing that gets said a lot is the, as a product manager, you don't really want to be too involved in the how, right? The the how is the engineers, like that's their area of expertise, right? You're you're kind of determining in a sense what we're going to build to to deliver value to the customers, and the engineers are taking that, and it's collaborative, of course, but they are predominantly responsible for the how. You know, they are understanding like what API calls do we need to set up? Do we you know new tables in the database, etc. But it sounds like a little. That's all. You're you're shifting slightly more into the the how in your your, in your current role. Um, I think it's definitely when you're writing backend tickets easier to 
to, to be too prescriptive, to be like this API needs to be updated to provide this piece of data. And that's that's too prescriptive, right? I think I, I've almost needed to gear myself to writing API stories that are not from our user's perspective, but are from our front end developer's perspective, right? As a front end developer, I'd like this data returned, or I'd like the ability to initiate this type of action, um, which is, you know, of course, a little bit interesting to be writing user stories from the perspective of a developer, but ultimately that's who the customer is for our, our backend team, right? So um, we've almost, I've almost had to think that way in, in terms of how I create the tickets. And and it is very interesting. So to for for my experience and, and sort of how how technical I guess air quotes how technical I have to be. Um, in my previous role, it was the I would guess what we would call a traditional user story level was where we operated. You know the the full the full bite of the hamburger. Uh, and actually, in my new role, it's even sort of up a level from that, which was uh, a little unique or not what I'm used to. Which uh, the every sort of um, we call them value stream teams, you know, scrum teams has a technical product owner who's a developer, but a percentage of their time is allocated to essentially working with the product manager and taking the initiatives and breaking it down into the work that the engineers are going to do. So it's actually a sort of, I'm now like even, uh, I guess, in a sense, a level, uh, you know, another degree abstracted away from the individual user story. And it's sort of up to the PO how they want to break it down. You know, we'll, we'll formulate what does the MVP look like? Like when we deliver this, you know, <laughs> we're going to have this button and click this, it's going to do this great. And then that is sort of where it gets handed off. And then if they, you know, want to make really granular tickets to break it out front end to back end that's they can the po has that option if they if some prefer maybe a more traditional user story um but but it is interesting i feel like i'm actually even a, a another level away from that that sort of decision yeah i guess if i were to you know be critical or think about what's challenging about that is i would say that when you write user stories right when you take a feature and you actually then say all right i'm building survey functionality what is all of the user stories that need to go into making this happen one of the most valuable pieces about that exercise is that it you know when you're thinking about each kind of incremental piece of value you're also kind of automatically thinking about how am I going to prioritize these, which ones are really important, which are MVP, which can you wait for user feedback on? Do you feel like being sort of a level of abstracted uh, before that process happens, like gives, in this case, the sort of developers or the, the product owners, maybe too much ownership over what constitutes MVP in some of these features? Yeah, so I do want to caveat it with um, the my the value stream I'm working on is like brand new. I was the first person on it, so we're still spinning up all the developers and uh, and other people on the team. So it, it's not something that I've had a ton of experience with yet. Um, but I will say I, I still actually it's funny you mentioned you still kind of go to that maybe it's just because we're used to it. You still go down to that user story level like the and then you actually go a level down to like um, break it front end and back end. I still find myself going at that level as well. And then that's where I'm like making cuts to like, and then I kind of aggregate it back up. So it is very interesting. I feel like we, we both, like, I'm still like kind of story mapping out how I would, you know, write the user stories for this, although I'm not actually um, uh, writing them. And then, and then that's where I kind of like, will determine, oh, we don't actually need this to, uh, you know, deliver the MVP. And then I'll take that out of sort of the like 
aggregated document or, or ticket, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. And I, I think the reason we both default to that is because the whole concept of a user story, right, is that it is a the smallest increment of value that you can provide the customer. And when you break your product down into all of these different increments, they are, you know, it's suddenly much easier to prioritize what is going to be the most important increment, right? Which individual story will make your customers happiest or help you achieve your goals and the rest can kind of be, can fall away. Um, so I think it makes sense that we both keep kind of defaulting to like, I think what a traditional PM should focus on because that's really sound and based in best practice. Uh, even if, you know, the actual processes uh, and what PMs are asked to do is sometimes a level up or a level down from it. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gives a sense of like, I guess, how technical <laughs> we have to be in, a, in our day to day. Um, what do you think, it, why is it important to, I guess, be, be at all technical to understand it, right? You know, wh why is, why is this even one of the seven core PM traits? If you want to take that, that list we talked about earlier, um, you know, what, why is it important to, to have any technical knowledge? Yeah. So if, if I go back to kind of your scale, right, your five point scale that starts it, I have no idea what these developers are talking about when I'm in the room with them. And it goes to, I understand everything deeply, you know, give me a text editor, I'll start writing the code. Uh, and, and that's the range. If I'm at that first range where I have no idea what anything's talking about, right, I go into the meeting, I say, we need a survey tool that needs to do X, Y, and Z. The developers start talking and, and I'm basically done, right? I've got nothing to add to the conversation. I don't understand what they're they're saying. Um, I can't uh, I can't tell them they're wrong or I can't tell them to consider other other ways of doing what they're doing because I just frankly, you know, don't don't have anything to contribute. And I think that's a, a bad position to be in, right? That's that's not helpful. And then on the flip side, if I do understand everything perfectly and I have the ability to actually go in there and build it myself. Uh, I do think that that there's then the opportunity where I'm gonna you know tell them how to build it, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna dictate you know the way that this application is gonna be structured and how the database and APIs and how all that's gonna work. And at that point, you know, why do we have developers, right? I should just you know function it, do it all on my own. Um, and so I, I think as a PM, and the reason why that sweet spot is helpful is because there are decisions that developers are making that have functional impacts on your product, right? That impact you know maybe what's possible in the future uh that impact uh how long the team is going to take to deliver different types of of capabilities right what's complex and what's simpler and if you can at least converse with your developers and talk to your developers about the ramifications of the decisions that they're making um, you can help ensure that you didn't accidentally give a requirement that you thought was mvp uh, to your developers and they're going to spend the next five weeks you know, working to deliver that that piece that if you had known it was that long or that that heavy or complex, you might have said, hey, let's let's save that. Let's let's focus on something else. Um, I think that's the level that as a PM you you need to to strive to be at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think understanding trade offs is is such a is a great way to think about it. And and actually, I love um, in that 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 Gibson Biddle list, he doesn't define technical as like knows how to program or or anything. It's can work effectively with engineers, whatever that means for your organization and your product. And you know, if it's a more technical product, that that means you will have to be more technical to effectively work with engineers. But I think that is the the core. That's what's going to drive how technical you actually need to be. Um, but yeah, I, I think the the being able to weigh in on 
trade-offs is so important. I actually remember one example jumped out where we were introducing a feature where it would basically take a bunch of user inputs and generate this sort of overall calculation. And it was it was kind of a heavy operation. And and you know, I was technical enough that as we were talking about it with the engineering team, we could understand the trade-offs between, you know, hey, do we do this when they save and sort of hold the user and wait until the results come back and sort of reload the whole area so that all you know the scores are updated to reflect that do we do this in the background in the in the back end but then do we have to do some sort of live refresh or can we that'll be really complicated so is it okay if there's scenarios where the calculation doesn't come back in time and the user might have to refresh and then we realized that a lot of the inputs that the user would be giving were not at the screen where the calculation was presented. And so we were able to decide like, okay, we should do it in the back end. And we're okay with the trade-off that sometime the calculation won't be there. And in a rare scenario, the user will have to know that they'll have to refresh. But for the vast majority of time, their front-end experience will still be very snappy and quick and we're not holding them up. And that felt like a like a conversation where if I was, you know, maybe where I started with my PM journey, this is a bit later on in, in my tenure at the company, then um, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to understand those trade-offs that we were trying to make. Yeah. And so I, I think the, the term that we use is negotiate with developers. Like they, they think about it, not just working with them, but actually negotiating with them. Right. Because um, again, there's, there's always going to be kind of multiple ways to build uh the same feature, right, to achieve the same outcome for a user. Um, but it, you want to be able to be in a position to understand the directions that I think your your development team might make so that you can negotiate with them about what's going to make the most sense for your application, because you do own that piece of it, right, in, in terms of those trade-offs. Um, so I guess if we think about what do we actually need to know, you know, what, what does a uh, a PM need to understand about an application in order to make those types of trade-offs or those, those uh, you know, to be able to negotiate with the developer. Yeah, I think the, the, the first thing that really helped me was understanding, I don't, there's probably a better term, but application, let's call it architecture, like high level, you know, let's assume you're not coming from a, a technical background, understanding how what it means when something's in the front end, the back end, the database, how those things link together at a very high level. I like to think like you can draw the picture, right? That says like this connects to the the the, the back end calls the database, right? And you can understand, you know, um, where sort of the different, I guess, operations and, and trade-offs are occurring and and understand that, you know, some of that that lingo. Yeah, I think that's that's very important. Uh, a tip for I think maybe uh, if you're you're wondering whether or not you understand that or not, like I think Nick, you and I have sort of defaulted already in this particular episode to talking a ton about like the architectural uh, and, and makeup, right? And like backend and front end tickets. Like if you're don't really follow what we're talking about there, that's probably a good sign that you know take a step back and just think high level about. Um, let me wrap my head around how a software application is structured and, and what the different pieces of it are, because I totally agree that's that's step one in understanding, you know, why are there front end and back end developers, um, you know, that's going to be sort of square one that unlocks a lot of the, the rest of, you know, 
how technical you need to be. You know, that's that's where to start. Yeah, and, and I, I think with that, I will say, again, depending on the company that you're working at and, and how technical you need to be, I don't think you need to know how to to code. Neither of us would be hired as programmers. <laughs> I, I think that's fair to say, right? Um, yeah, and, and part of, if you're wondering, I guess, how to kind of gain some of that knowledge, if it is something that, and this is true with, with really anything in life, but if it is something that interests you, you can go deeper. It's something that I really enjoyed and ended up um, just out of interest taking courses on uh, Treehouse, Coursera, tinkering my, myself to understand, oh, I now see how to get some information from a database and put it on a screen, right? Like nothing crazy. Um, but I, I don't even think, you know, writing code is is a prerequisite or, I, you know, it hasn't for me in, in my career. I don't think I've ever had, um, a, I don't know, have you ever had any technical questions that, what's the most technical question that you've actually gotten? From a developer? No, sorry, from, from a, I'm sorry, I was thinking like an interview where like. Um, oh, um, so in uh, one of the, the questions that uh, I got in interviews that was to design to test my technical capability was to give basically an example of how I would design a database for a very simple application. Um, you know, you can think about it as, uh, let's say I was asked to build an application for museums, uh, and it was for museum enthusiasts and art enthusiasts that wanted to find um, paintings that were most important to them. And I was asked, you know, how would I design the database for that? Um, and, you know, obviously as a PM, right, like I would never be, be asked to write user stories for like the database design, um, but it, I think it goes they're basically asking that question to understand if you know how software applications are structured. And so, you know, the, the way to think about that type of answer is what type of objects are there and what relationships are there between them? And so for my example, you know, there'd obviously be uh, artists, right? That would be one of our tables in the database that would list out the artists and maybe their age and when they lived and what type of art they did. Um, and then there would obviously be the paintings and actual the art table, and there'd be relationships between the artists and the actual art. And then, of course, there'd be relationships between the museums and the and the art. And uh, you know, you kind of keep building on it like that. And it was basically, how would you structure that to support your application? And it isn't honestly too much more complex than what I just talked about, right? It's just objects and relationships between them. But um, it showed that you know I understood how a developer needs to think about structuring an application, um, and you know if if you're very uncomfortable with that, I think as a PM, right, there are kind of intro, I think SQL type uh, classes to take, right? You can watch a 30-minute video on SQL, which is basically one of two types of databases that there are in the world. And, and definitely the most important one to know is, is SQL or SQL databases. Um, the other one is called NoSQL and uh, is much, I think it's much less common uh, in, in terms of, you know, the types of applications that people are building. Um, but, you know, watch a 30 minute video on, on SQL and understand how somebody queries a database because you can't really understand how to query it unless you know how they're structured. And that'll give you a lot of background on, you know, what is a backend and how are backends structured and, you know, uh, how, how do you get the data out of there? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. If, uh, you know, I, I view that sort of app architecture, that, that to me, starting point, you know, number one with a bullet and then drilling in from there, I, I agree. Having some SQL knowledge, um, understanding the, the basics of a database structure, also helpful for data analysis, if that's something that, and this very much, I think, depends on the company. You know, some companies may have um, data analysts or someone that's able to query the uh, the database for you if you want to get some quantitative um, uh, data out of it. But if you're maybe at a smaller company or something, that may be something that um, you're sort of tasked with. You know, if you if you want to get some some data out and it's not readily available in your your Pendo or your Google Analytics, then that might be up to you. And um, uh, you know, having that SQL skill and being able to see how your uh, you know analytical database is structured would be valuable. Yeah, that, I mean, always like database data is always sort of level one user data, right? User behavior data. If you don't have something sitting on your front end doing click tracking, um, you know, you've always got what type of data did your customers create and that ended up in your database. So that's sort of level one user user management or user behavior tracking that, um, uh, you know, for a lot of PMs, having that type of SQL knowledge, you might see it on some job descriptions, can be a big bonus for for people because it means you don't have to ask a developer to pull that data for you you can can go get it yourself mm -hmm. and then i think one of the other ones here is um just kind of understanding apis uh at, at a reasonable level um and and this is actually one that i think you can learn by trying to do something helpful a, a lot of software you're going to use as a pm have APIs, right? Not just the one you're building, right? But if you're using Jira, you know, that that has a suite of APIs there. Um, there's a tool called Postman, which is um, just a very simple user interface to allow you to make API calls. And, and, and you can kind of Google that if you want to learn more. Um, and you can mess around and try to, you know, uh, <laughs> just check out Jira's API docs and try to go access, find a a ticket use it there use an api call to go find a ticket you just you just wrote in jira or something um uh you know pendo a lot of those front-end analytic tools have have apis as well um if you want to um call data or kind of build out reports that they don't have readily available um so that one that's one that i i think is valuable and can also be sort of learned on the maybe on the job if you will or or in a way that is somewhat productive yeah, I think this is another one, right, where um, you can differentiate yourself as a PM having this, and you'll also sort of put to bed any concern about how technical you are if you're able to demonstrate a pretty solid understanding of, uh, you know, how APIs function. And uh, there's probably sort of two, um, you know, I guess types of of APIs that are uh, going to be most helpful for for people, right? They're sort of um, uh, for people to look at. Um, there's sort of the, the JSON format, right, which is very, very common where uh, you'll probably see most APIs, many organizations uh, that are sort of building structured APIs are going to use JSON as the way their data is returned. And then the newer one that you might want to do some research on is GraphQL. I've actually seen more recently a big turn to how uh, to, to GraphQL and Again, we're getting super technical this episode, which is sort of just the nature of what we're talking about. But uh, the reason why GraphQL is becoming more popular is because JSON, uh, when you make a call, returns an entire 
set of data to you basically in the API. Like you don't, you don't tell the API what you want. You just make a call to a particular location and then it returns everything that matches that query. Whereas with GraphQL, you have to specify every individual field that you want. And the reason that they started using GraphQL calls is that for performance reasons, uh, they actually help your database uh, potentially uh, performance-wise run a lot faster and, and be a lot more performant because there's no more sort of bring every field back and I'll just pick and choose the two or three that I need. I actually have to go in and specify the two or three that I need so that I'm not doing a, or not putting a, an unnecessary burden on a, on our you know APIs. I feel like a, a good starting point, a good a good takeaway here. If if any of the words we said today <laughs> weren't weren't like super clear, that's a good starting. Even if it's front end, if it's you know GraphQL is probably the the piece we've talked about that I'm least familiar with, although lightly familiar from one of the uh, tools we integrated with at, at my last job. Um, so yeah, maybe that's a maybe that's a good starting point. I don't know, Brendan. Do you have any sort of uh, I guess overall takeaways as far as like how people can can get more technical or or where they should start? Yeah, I mean, I will say I thought I learned a ton. I I followed this sort of online free course that had you build your own mobile app that I thought was uh, really interesting, just so I understood what developers did every day. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Yeah. the types of decisions they made. Um, it was free. It took a little while. It, it, it allowed me to create a solitaire app. And that was something that um, just gave me a whole another level of appreciation for um, for it. And then the other thing is, you know, don't, don't shy away from getting exposure to the technical aspects of the products that you're building, right? Like a lot of consumer facing or, or products that are, are, you know, have human users, now have public APIs that are part of them, uh, right? And, and, you know, be a PM, like think about maybe playing a role in uh, writing the user stories for those, um, those types of projects, right? Don't, don't shy away from it because ultimately, uh, you know, it, it's something that definitely takes some sort of dedicated time to, to sit down and learn um, because, uh, you know, it's really easy just to be, be that level of I have no idea what anyone in this room is talking about, and I, I don't think you can just sit and sit in the room and and pick it up. Like I do think you have to kind of get yourself out of there, mm -hmm. start reading, start looking at some YouTube videos. Right, there's a lot of material out there to help people learn this stuff, um, and so that's where I'd start. Yeah, it's a I, it's a bit of an uphill climb, and and then it and then it definitely feels like it it levels out. But hey, we all start at the I have no idea what anyone is talking about level and we'll frequently get humbled back to that level <laughs> as conversations <laughs> change and evolve. So yeah, for sure. Awesome. All right. That's going to do it for episode four. Uh, we'll, we'll make the same ask that we did at the end of the last episode. If you're enjoying this rate, rate the episode, subscribe, do all that good stuff. If this was a YouTube video, I'd be pointing like down being like, like, and subscribe, you know, um, <laughs> My my mom texted me and said, "How do I leave a a, a review?" So <laughs> I'd love someone else to beat her to it if that's possible. Uh, she hasn't figured it out yet, but um, yeah. So I'm just gonna know that your mom came up twice in this episode, and I think that's over the threshold of one that is allowable. So <laughs> <that's gonna be> <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> only one mom commented episode. All right, thanks everyone. Until next week, squat out. Take care.